Let's go ahead and pray together. God, we thank you so much for this morning and the opportunity to be in your presence and uh, be uh, with your followers. God, I pray that you will open up your word to us, uh, that you will inspire us, that you will challenge us, that you will speak to us through this time in the Gospel of John. And God, I pray that you will just silence the things that are distracting us, the things that confuse us, the things that are um, dark and not wanting us to enter into the light. And so, God, for the battle that is going on for our minds and our hearts right now, we pray for protection and we pray that we will hear clearly uh, your love for us and that we will experience that love today. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, this week in our series on the Gospel of John, we are headed into chapter 13. Uh, we've been moving through things at a pretty fast pace. Uh, to be at chapter 13 already means that we have gone through entire chapters in one week, and we have skipped entire chapters between weeks. Uh, but we are trying to get a, an overview of what John is trying to do in his gospel, uh, in his message to the Christians who, who are really struggling with the, the consequences of their decision to believe in Jesus. And so we find ourselves in a place where our faith is called into question and maybe our, our faith is causing us difficulties and John is speaking to those situations. That as we struggle with what it means to be a Christian in a world that may be less Christian than what God envisions, uh, what does that look like? How do we endure suffering? How do we endure hardship? How do we endure an environment that is less than cooperative with God's ways. And so we've been going through quite a bit of it. John chapter 3 or 13 really begins uh, this transition into the second half of the gospel of John. The first 12 chapters we've been going through, and, and each of these are giving signs pointing to the identity of Jesus and the divinity of Jesus, and they're all pointed toward what is called the hour, which the hour is the crucifixion. And so everything has been pointing towards that. And in John chapter 13, we get to this turning point. We transition into another, another style, another, another phase of what John is doing. It's called the book of glory. That it's, as, as we go through verse by verse and chapter by chapter, it's all leading to the hour, the glorification of Jesus, which is the crucifixion, the cross. John, uh, in chapters 13 through 17, that's where we're going to begin today. We're going to spend the next four weeks in these, these chapters, what's called the final discourse. As we've been going through these, these different stories, we've got this combination of sign and discourse, sign and discourse. We see a sign, and then Jesus talks about it, and he explains it, and he has a dialogue about it. And so for the next several chapters and for the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at this discourse for one sign, the sign of the cross. And so a little bit of a roadmap of where we're headed. Today we're going to be looking at chapter 13, which transi transitions us into this final discourse. And then we're going to spend a couple weeks on chapters 14 through 16, only a couple weeks on 14 through 16, as we look at Jesus 
giving us and leaving behind the Spirit who acts as a counselor on our behalf. And then we are going to spend a week on chapter 17 where Jesus prays for his followers. And then we'll be going into the weeks of Easter, looking at chapters 18 and 19, looking at the crucifixion of Jesus. And then we will have our communion service on the 9th of March, where we will gather in the gym and spend time really at the table, focusing at the gift of Jesus. And then chapter 20, the resurrection of Jesus, will be on Easter Sunday. And then the following week, we will go through chapter 21 to conclude our series on John. We can think of the Gospel of John as a a great pendulum. A pendulum swings back and forth from, from high to low to high. And this pendulum starts at a high point, goes to a low point, and then comes back the other side on a high point. John is very much that way, where we started at the high point of in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. We had this great story of, of the incarnation of Jesus, that, that we see God through Jesus, and that, that becomes a high starting point for the gospel. And then the pendulum swings down, and we get to John chapter 13, which is the very lowest point of the gospel. And then we swing back up to the end of the gospel and see the cross as a high point of the gospel. The death of Jesus is not the low point of John. John chapter 13 and the betrayal of Judas is the low point of the gospel. And this is where we spend our time today in chapter 13, this low point. It opens with a very familiar story. It's a very nice story, but, but it's so much more than, than what we can really see and what we, we typically think about. We read through John chapter 13, which we'll do in just a moment, and it's telling us something about the identity of who Jesus is. And it shows us how to follow him in his greatness. Jesus has rejected being the king that people expected him to be, And he is actually the complete opposite of what they wanted him to be. And it's this story in John 13 where we see Jesus being the opposite of what we think he should be. Let's start in chapter 13, verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the mill took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. 
No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that is why he said not every one of them was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for, what I, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So imagine for a moment that you are home and you are cleaning house, getting ready for some friends to show up, and you are cleaning away, and in walks the Queen of England. And this unexpected house guest uh, creates a reaction, right? This reaction of like shock or laughter or like, really? Here is the Queen of England in my house. I'm trying to do chores, and she shows up. And not only does she show up, but she puts on an apron and picks up a broom and begins to sweep your kitchen with you. Now, now, what is the look on your face when this happens? What is your reaction to her? What is your impression of her? Uh, what dumb thing are you saying or doing in that moment? And, and this is a bit of what's going on here in this room. You have Jesus, who they have said is Lord and teacher, this, this position of high authority and high respect, and he comes in, and, and they're ready for this mill. We don't have a lot of description of this mill. We don't have a lot of the, the Lord's Supper imagery that we would have in the other Gospels, because remember, John does that in chapter 6, where he talks about the bread of life. And so we get to this meal without a lot of detail, but apparently they show up and there is no host for the meal. Because the responsibility of the host would be to make sure that the servant is washing everyone's feet. And so they have this meal, there is no host, and apparently there is also no servant either, because all of their feet remain unclean and dirty. So no one has been the host, no one has been the servant, so Jesus takes on both of those roles. He becomes host to the mill, and he becomes servant of the mill, and he takes on the, the menial and degrading job of washing their gross and dirty feet. This is the lowest of jobs. Even Jewish slaves would not be expected to do such a job. This was left to the Gentile slaves. And so Jesus humbles himself. He disrobes. 
he gets down on his knees and he begins washing their feet. Now, how awkward and humiliating is this? When Jesus enters in and takes over not only as host, but as servant and says, I'm going to wash your feet. What is your reaction to that? What is your response? What dumb thing do you say? Because the Lord and teacher is on his knees in front of you. You see, Jesus knew what time it was. He knew what his place was. He knew where he was going. He knew what the end game was. And it is within that understanding of who he is, that identity of who he is, that he adopts this posture of a slave. And so this serving others flows out of his true identity of of knowing who he is and where he's going. When we know who we are and when we know where we're going, it empowers us to serve. Serving flows out of our true identity. And so he washes their feet. Whose feet does he wash? He washes all of their feet, including Judas. And Jesus knows what's going on with Judas, and he knows that Judas is in the grip of darkness and that there is this cosmic war going on, and he still humbles himself and washes the feet of Judas. And so it is in this context of Jesus serving that we really get to the lowest place in this story. Picking up in verse 18. I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill the passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. Now this interesting dialogue starts going on. I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly I tell you, whoever accepts Anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. There's going to be a lot of foreshadowing here for what's coming up in the chapters to come. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. Jesus is troubled by the fact that someone is going to betray him. His disciples stared at one another at a loss who is, who is it? Who's going to be the one who betrays him? Which one do they mean? And so one of them reclining next to him leans over and asks. Simon Peter motioned to his disciple, to this disciple, and said, ask him which one he means. Now, Peter doesn't want to be the one to actually ask, so he gets his buddy to do the asking for him. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? There's this quiet side conversation going on to what's going on at the table. Who is it? And Jesus answers him and tells him, It's the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then he dips the piece of bread in. He gives it to Judas. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. Giving of bread is a very intimate, personal, kind gesture. 
And Jesus gives him this bread. And Jesus tells him, what you are about to do, do it quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, received this gift of intimate relationship with Jesus, he went out, and it was night. This is the third time that Judas' betrayal of Jesus comes up in the narrative of John. This is an important element to what, what John is telling us. The role of Judas becomes this very low point, but also a center point of the story. That at the very middle here, we, we have the story of Judas betraying Jesus. And it's something that weighs heavily on Jesus' heart. It hurts him. It concerns him. This is, this is a big deal for him. It's, it's, it's a low point for Jesus as well. And so Judas departs in the night. Remember, we have got this, this consistent imagery throughout John of light and of dark. The night is the exact opposite of Jesus. Jesus is the light. The night is the antithesis of that. And so we see this, this cosmic struggle that's going on, this, this battle that is waging on behind what able, people are able to see. The disciples are oblivious to what's going on, but there is something going on in Judas. Judas had been in close proximity to the light for three years. He had been close to Jesus and working with Jesus. He had been closer to the light than any of us could ever personally experience. And it's in this context that Judas still decides to follow the darkness. That even in this close proximity to the light, the darkness takes over, he makes a decision, and he follows through on that decision to betray Jesus. And so what was it like for Jesus to wash this man's feet? What was it like for Jesus to kneel down in front of this man that he knew was going to betray him, that he knew was in this cosmic battle of light and dark? He knew what was going to happen, and he willing, willingly decides to go through with that anyway, that he kneels in front of Judas and washes his feet. And so Judas leaves to go do what he's going to do, and Jesus is left with his own. His own are the ones who are closest to him, his most intimate followers, the ones who are going to stick it out with him. And it's to this group that he gives his final instructions. This last section of chapter 13 serves as a bit of a transition into the farewell discourse, starting in verse 31. When he was gone, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And just as I told you, as just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you. 
love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And so it's in this context of service. It's in this context of betrayal. And this context of anticipated betrayal of Peter that we get to this place, this command to love one another. There's several different things going on here that we can't get to, but we're going to focus in on this new commandment, this, this command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. This is a command that's given at the low point of the story. It's in this context of, of Jesus humbly washing their feet, and he says, love one another. Jesus is betrayed by a very dear friend, and he says, love one another. Jesus is on the way to the hour of his glorification, a death on a cross, and he says, love one another. It's in the context of knowing that Peter is going to betray him that he says, love one another. That if people will see you loving one another, they will know that you are really my followers. That you are my true disciples. And so Jesus tells his followers, love one another. I've modeled it. Now do it. And he wants his followers to, to show a type of love that is unparalleled to the world around it. It should be distinctive. It should stand out. It should be weird. It should be different. It should be noticeable. And so as we look at all of chapter 13, we see this story that can oftentimes become very familiar, this idea of Jesus washing feet and we should be servants. It, it seems so benign, so basic, so easy, so children's Sunday school. But don't lose the power of what's going on here. That Jesus, the Lord and teacher, is humbling himself to this degrading place of servant. And it's within that context of service that he gives a command. A command to love. Not only is he pouring out water to wash feet, he's also pouring out his life for our cleansing. And he takes on this nature of a servant. He lays himself down both physically to the end of it, to the very end of his life. And he sacrifices everything. He's not just sacrificing status by washing feet, he's also sacrificing his life to save us. And he assumes this role. It is not forced upon him. His life is not taken from him. He gives it. He chooses to get on his knees and wash. And he chooses to go to the cross. 
and he willingly places himself there on our behalf. And the hard thing is he calls us to do the same. He has the same expectation of his followers. We could never go through it in the same way that he does it, but he calls us to humble ourselves, to become a servant, to love one another. But there's a warning in the middle of it, this warning of Judas, that Judas becomes this vessel of, of God's opponents. He, he enters into the darkness. He, he makes this choice. And Judas stood closer to Jesus than any of us can ever imagine, but he still changes sides. He made the wrong turn somewhere and continued down that path. And instead of admitting a mistake and, and turning back to Jesus, he, he continues to press forward into the realm of darkness. And so we see in, in John where, where God is most deeply at work, Satan's attack is so much more strong there. We, we have Satan's attack coming in in a very acute way where God is working. Judas saw the light, he understood it, but he chose the darkness anyway. And so we too are in danger. Judas is a warning sign for us. Do not be seduced by the darkness. Do not head down that path. And when you find yourself headed down that path, turn around. Because as we'll see later in the story of Peter, there is redemption for those who betray Jesus and turn back to Jesus. Judas did not choose to turn back. And so we are in this battle of light and dark, night and day. And what is the response to the darkness? How do we respond to it? Jesus says, love. That if you love one another, this is what you are called to be. This is the identifying marker but the thing is, love is not something that can be willed. Love is not something that can be forced. Love is not something that can be required. So when we receive a command to love, it's not a command that we can really keep. Because you don't will yourself to love someone. Love is an overflow of other things. Love is an overflow of things that you believe. Love is an overflow of decisions that you've made. Love is an overflow of the love that you have already received from God. And so God loves us. And it's with that love that it overflows out of us to love others. It's that identity, knowing who we are, what we've received, and where we're headed. And when we are rooted in that true identity of who we are as ones loved by God, when we're rooted in that, then we can express the love to others that Jesus calls us to express. This is the type of love that the new command is, is directing us to. 
because we are recipients of such a great love, because we are recipients of such an incredible love, we are able to love others. It's through the love of Jesus given to us that we're able to love others. John says in 1 John chapter 4, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. And so without the incredible experience of God's love for us, we will be ill-equipped to love others. So for Jesus, love required humility. It required sacrifice, and it requires no less for us. That if we are to love the way God wants us to love, the way that he says will be an identifying marker of those who follow him, then we will be humble and we will make sacrifices and we will serve. When a non-Christian walks into our church, what is their first observation? What do they see among us? When non-Christians see Christians interacting with one another in the marketplace, when they see Christians interacting with one another on social media, when they see Christians interacting with each other in wherever, out in the world, what do they see? What do they experience? Do they experience people who have a heart of service and love to one another, or are they seeing something else? Because that's what will make us stand apart. Nothing shocks the world more than to see a community that has a radical, faithful, genuine love that's shared among its believers. And this is not a suggestion by Jesus. This is not a, it would be nice to. This is a mandate. This is a, a demand that he places on us to become a community of love. It's not a suggestion. And we have the model of Jesus who washed the feet of everyone, even Judas. And it's this model that we look at and when darkness tries to enter in, we combat it with servant-hearted love. Our service overflows from who we are. And so if we, if we obey the command to serve one another, the world will see us as a community of love, and they will, they will know that we are his disciples. It's a serving love that bears witness to the world of who Jesus truly is. And so, as we wrap up this morning, I want you to think about two questions in, in, in a moment of reflection. To think now, how have you been the recipient of love from Jesus and from the body of Christ? How have you received love from Jesus and from other believers, the body of Christ. I want you to close your eyes for a moment and just dwell on that question for a moment. What love have you received from Jesus and his followers? 
So knowing the love that you've received, how can you show love to others on his behalf? How can you show love to others on his behalf? Think about that for a moment. Let's really think about what God is saying to us in this moment. As we reflect on the love that we've received and as we reflect on the love that we can give, God, what are you saying to me? And what are you going to do about it? What's going to change about this afternoon? What's going to change about tomorrow when you head back to work or school? What's going to happen throughout this week as you think about the love that you have received and the love that you are called to give? This is a time of prayer. It's a time where we can quietly meditate on what we have been learning. It's a time where we can pray with one another as families, as small groups, as friends. It's a time that you can come forward and pray with one of the shepherds. But let's join in together as we think about what is God saying to us about the love that we've received and the love that we show. Let's pray. God, we thank you for giving us your Son that he would come into this world, that he would humble himself, that he would kneel before us and wash our feet, that he would pour his own life out for us and call us into a new way of living that the world cannot even imagine. God, show us how to love the way you love. It's in his name we pray, amen.